came in a little later. I want you to have Second Peter under your thumb and then Romans 13. Second Peter 1 and Romans 13. What does it mean to love? I mean, it's a simple question that we all ask throughout our lives, something that we ponder over and over again in different seasons. What does it mean to love our spouse, to love our children? What does it mean for our children to love us? What does it mean for us to love our neighbor? What does it mean for the Lord to love us and for us to love him and so on and so forth. And the good thing is, is that in the New Testament instruction to the people of Christ, we get the answers to that. And it's a manifold. It's not like this. You know, simply say, well, if I die for somebody, that's the only way to love them. No, no. And really, even if we do die for someone, which is an incredible sacrifice and an act of love, it's not redemptive love, right? It's not what Christ did. We can't die as Christ died because our death is deserved. <laughs> Christ's was not. It was a substitute that paid for something that life might be ours to embrace, guaranteed. And you might know that as Timothy has written, uh, has received this letter written by Paul, it is a letter of love. It is a letter that is motivated by love. It is a letter that speaks in the context of love. It is a letter that was for this young elder to understand loving pastoral oversight. Then lovingly give that instruction to the church and patiently and lovingly oversee that instruction as it plays itself out, sometimes painstakingly. And so for us today, we are here today not to recapitulate all the theological things that make us excited, but we're here today to be instructed by God himself through the writing of the apostles that we've already heard in 1 Peter chapter 1 that what? Were breathed out by God, carried along. And Paul's going to say the same thing to Timothy in the second letter. So we're not here to be theologians this morning. We're not here to parse the arguments to establish credibility amongst men because of our understanding of these great things. We're here this morning to be taught and trained to do the things commanded of us in the Bible because of love. Because of love. And I find it very odd because when I say things like that according to Scripture, I'm a legalist. And then when I emphasize the gospel of free and sovereign grace... I'm an antinomian, <laughs> according to the naysayers, who at all times and every ways when they speak that way are unloving, thus unchristlike, thus should not be paid attention to. One of my greatest sins is that I really pay too much attention to godless behavior, thinking that I can correct it by encouraging alternate behavior. And the scripture says there's a baseline through which Right behavior will come, and that is the simple disciplines of assembly, prayer, reading, hearing, and oversight. Simply. No other. So that if we expect anything else from God without those things, we're really just spitting in the wind. There's nothing else left to receive if those are not in their proper place. So here we are, week 24 segueing a little bit deeper into this instruction that Paul gives Timothy, where he says in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made, and I'm going to emphasize what we've already learned, for all types of people. All classes of people, all races of people, all genders of people, all sexes of people, and the list goes on. However you want to define Whatever divisions that the culture makes, we are to pray for all types of people. Powerful people, mean people, ugly people, skinny people, fat people, strong people, weak people, sick people, healthy people, lovable people, unlovable people, scoundrels, and good guys all alike. We're to pray for all types of people. 
And specifically, Paul makes mention of something here. He says, let me just illustrate it this way. For instance, I want you to pray for kings. And I want you to pray for all the people in high positions. Now, that's easy, right? That's easy in our culture because, you know, National Day of Prayer, we pray. There were some very good prayers that took place this past National Day of Prayer here. Good stuff. But I've seen some of the prayers that we pray for kings and people in high places. I've heard how these attitudes sometimes come across where ah, Christians pray, but they pray not according to the scripture, but according to the flesh. And they pray, oh God, destroy that king. Yeah. Oh Lord, cause him to bust his lip on the bathtub this morning. Break out his tooth that he may know you are God. I mean, come on, folks. And of course, I'm being silly. I've literally sat underneath a pastor before as a guest teacher who prayed that the owner of the property on which the church parking lot existed would die if he did not give the property to them. And it's sort of like Scooby-Doo. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that's what I heard in my head. There's always a cartoon in my head. I'm sorry. It's not a cartoon. It's comedy. I'm constantly suppressing it. So you have to forgive me. And that's what I heard. And I'm like, this is crazy. That was in 2009, by the way. Just a few miles up the road. Why? That's not the instruction here. And what we've come across now is that this instruction for the elders of the church to command of the church to be in the practice of praying for kings. Now who was the king? This is where it gets interesting. Nero. Okay, historians. Raise your hand if Nero was a good guy. No hands. Raise your hand if Nero got along with Christians. No hands. Oh, Nero was a bad guy. Nero hated Christians. Nero hated everybody. Nero was a lunatic. Nero used to set people on fire just to watch them burn if they were in the faith. Paul dare command the elders of his church to pray for that man? I'll pray for him, all right. Bust out his tooth on the bathtub, God. Get him! I mean, you know. No. What does Paul say for the church to pray about a really dirty, rotten scoundrel. And I'm making it very benign, y'all, for the sake of the children in the room. The culture in which we live today cannot hold a candle to the debauchery of the first century Nero. Cannot touch the immorality that existed publicly and presently and forwardly and openly and acceptably. What other adverb can I put in there in first century Nero? Not one. We look like the Pharisees in comparison as a culture today to the culture of first century Nero. And if you want to learn it, do it on your own. Do not let minor children watch over your shoulder. It is not fit for their conscience. Paul says pray for them. Pray for this man. Pray for him and for others like him. And what are we to pray? Father, I pray for the king who kills my family. I pray that I may live a life of peace with him. I pray that I may be dignified as your child before this king and that we may be at peace. You know what Paul's teaching and then also teaching the church to pray for is that we could live such a life as believers that we're not on the radar of Nero. That's what Paul's asking. Stay out of his eyesight. Stay out of his way. Because 
Paul will remind the Romans in 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Okay, beloved, you are subject to this man. He is your king. He rules over you. Not my king, not my president, not my governor. Psh, tell it to God. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. You see, but we have a problem in our country. Because our constitution establishes us as the rulers of our own domain. By the people, for the people. Our ruling documents restrict the powers of our king. So that he's not a king. But it's a democratic republic. It's not we hold the sword. We give the sword to those we put in power. And when those people are put in power, it is because God has established them therefore. Not as punishment. God wasn't punishing the church of the first century because they didn't do things right. Or they didn't have the right political party. Or they didn't have the right bumper sticker. Or they didn't do the right thing in the context of their legalities or their morals or their ethics. Well, what about the judges and the king? Folks, we are not ancient Israel. That's a very small number of people under a very short period of time that display, just like creation, God separating a people for himself who even when they have all the knowledge of righteousness cannot obtain it without his mercy. And on their best of days, they're guilty of sin. Politics and grace. Where do they collide? How do we walk in this? And, and I, I would love to get into some reform political theory and, 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 and some philosophy because it's a hobby horse of mine, but I'll stay away from it because it's not beneficial. But if you want to talk about that kind of stuff sometime when I have nothing else to do, Bring it on, because it's awesome discussion with coffee. But for the rest of us, it's not important. Now, I know the yeah buts in our minds. Yeah, but look what's happening in the world. Hallelujah. Sovereign God. Look what's going on over here. If we don't do this, my people who are called by my name, blah, 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 blah. Yes, we all know what's wrong with the world. And much more was wrong with the world in the days of Paul than are, that is in wrong, wrong with the world today. And in some way, if we look at the consequences of it, they're the same. It's the same. But we've forsaken the commands of Christ to live a peaceful life by being triggered by our kingship, our personal kingship, thinking that we have a voice in the context of a sovereign situation. And that God somehow, through, I don't know, maybe it was after maps and it fell out. You know, you got the Bible, you got maps, and then something out there, and it fell out. But I'll show, you, I'll show you the instruction of how we're supposed to engage in politics. There it is. It's a black hole. Because it's a never-ending battle. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't call Christians into leadership, into politics. It doesn't mean that you may have a specific thing that is dear to you, that you may have a specific platform or something that you focus on that, that engages your vote as an American citizen. It doesn't even mean that you might be at odds in your conscience to consider that someone may differ from you. But these things are irrelevant in the body of Christ. Because so many times and through so many places, not every place, but many places in the country, we consider the Bible Belt to be godly. But there's nothing about the godliness of the Bible Belt. The reason they call it the Bible Belt is because it's choking people. It's too tight. And that's not historically accurate, but it's my take on it. We've all got a Bible, and it's big, and we're beating people over the head with it because they're not like us. And it's the same thing the Pharisees did with the very Word of God 
to the very word of God when he walked on two legs on the earth. They beat him over the head with his own word. The devil did the same thing in the wilderness with Jesus Christ. But I'm not God the Son, so neither are you, and we are not wise enough to see that sometimes. But, beloved, we are living in a historical tradition of idolatry, and we're not at peace. When we're triggered by certain things, when we're up in arms by certain things, it's an indicator of something that's important to us. And we should pay attention to it. We should work through it. We should filter our passions through the sovereignty of God and his word and instruction to our lives. And those emotions, while they may inform us of what is important to us, they cannot make us act outside the confines of God's word. Let me say that again in a different way. Though we will see how we feel, those feelings shouldn't make us disobey the Lord. So when I want to, I hadn't said this in a while, punch something in the throat, <laughs> I have to just simmer down because Christ says I shouldn't because that's not love. And I'm not the sword bearer in the context of government, so I must abstain from that type of attitude. So here in this first century, Paul's saying, teach the church to pray that we may lead a peaceful life with these people who are destroying our lives. Pray for them in a way that we would lead a quiet life. I mean, if you would admit to the world that you're a, a gossip or a busybody, just stand up. I mean, you know, have you ever, you ever been in a place like that? No, no I'm just joking. Stay back now. Because, you know, some of us, we're more inclined to do that because we like information. We like to chat it up. It's interesting. That's why tabloids and magazines have sold for so long. If nobody cared about the gossip, they'd rot on the shelves. But we do. We care about it. And what's more gossipy than all the negative nillies and the garbage coming out of our political landscape? What's more juicy than feeling like the sky is falling when we're not even under the sky that's supposedly falling. And yet if we were to be dealing with it in the context of every time something was wrong, then the Bible would instruct us to do it. Now I hear the voices in my head. I shouldn't say that out loud. I hear them now. Yeah, but Titus, call them out. Paul says to Ephesus, but tell them, tell the world about all this evil. No, it's instruction to the church, and Titus is an elder giving instruction on how to deal with church discipline. So I have to pay close attention to that because I sort of am in the same role, right? But it's not written to every individual Christian in the world. First Timothy's written not to every individual Christian in the world. It's written to, every, it's written to one individual elder in Ephesus over 2,000 years ago, to which the instruction then applies to every elder of Christ in the world forever so that the church then can be instructed. And the beauty of it is that there's no hidden knowledge. We're not special people. Y'all can read the instruction manual too. You go to that young doctor and he's back there in the back looking up whatever's going on with you. You can buy those books. You can know that you're dying from 73 simultaneous diseases by just going to WebMD. Just get the gender right. Or you brothers might have ovarian cancer. I mean, you know, you never know. Don't go there unless you're just wanting a trip down horror lane. So here we are, dignified in every way because we are to pray in this way, to live this way, because this is what pleases the Lord. Now see, here's another little voice in my head. It's impossible to please God without faith. Absolutely. But there's a context in what that means in Hebrews about pleasing God and what Paul is meaning here to Timothy about pleasing God. There is a sense in which we know that the gospel, free, sovereign, this gracious, amazing, finished work of salvation applied only to the elect of Christ is an unchangeable, immutable, eternal promise 
that we have been granted. How do I know? We believe. That's faith. We rest in the work of Christ, in his person, in his teaching. And so we are pleasing to God because we are clothed in a righteousness not of our own. But here, what Paul is saying is about what is pleasurable to God in the context of the conduct of the church. And we can act like idiots and we can live in sinfulness but it does not please the Lord. It doesn't mean we're condemned, Romans 6, 7, and 8, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, even though, see the Lord agrees, even though, it's perfect timing. We talked about that this morning. We set that up. (laughs) Even though we will sin, we do sin, even when we try hard, we're still in sin because by nature, we're sinners. And that word, by the way, in Ephesians 2, by nature, some of us were talking about this, means by birth. We are found in our father Adam and all of his progeny, and we're walking through the centuries, sinners subject by birth to the wrath, that is the anger of God, because God is holy and he hates sin. He has to hate sin if he's completely different. And in his holiness is his righteousness, etc., 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 That is who he is. It is what he is. And we could talk about that forever. But this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Because when we pray for those people who destroy us, when we pray for those leaders who try to overcome us, when we pray for the circumstances of our culture that the Lord would would work in it, we pray what? Most importantly, like we talked about about last week, that His will is done. We want Your will, Father, to be done. And so His will is being displayed and exposed every second of time. That which is taking place is the will of the Father for His purposes. And even when it is extremely, it is the extreme antithesis of what is good and pleasing in our understanding of where it's going, it is always good for the beloved because God causes, according to Romans, Paul's teaching to the Romans, all things to work together for good for His people. As we'd see in the Old Testament, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. What, what was the context there? When Joseph's brothers hated him, lied about him, sold him into slavery, brought back his bloody jacket and told his daddy he was dead, put him in prison, and then Joseph ended up becoming their savior. You see the parallel of the gospel there? Beloved, this understanding of grace, this understanding of how we should approach even the most vile of people to our Father is directly related to the depths of our understanding of the grace of God for us. God has elect people who are monsters, like Paul. You know why Paul had such a sympathetic heart toward Nero? they were the same person. They hated Christians with the exact same tenacity. They didn't care whether these people and their children lived or died. They just wanted them out of the way. And that's not my interpretation. That's Paul's confession. He calls himself the chief of sinners. Beloved, there's never been a man according to their own confession that's ever been grossly as gross a hater and a bigot as Paul from Tarsus. But God has his elect even in the great people of the world, the kings, the high places. God has elect that look like Nero. And God has elect that look like stinky shepherds in the middle of nowhere. God has elect who are spiritual elites and self-righteous, self-righteous, arrogant people like Paul. 
and he has elect amongst people who don't know the truth if it slapped them in the face and they live and serve false idols and worship false gods like the Samaritans, like the Assyrians, like the Egyptians, and all the other shins and ends of the Old Testament. Because God has his elect people from all nations, from all tribes, from all tongues. And beloved, we are going to be together forever in this new creation with our Lord and Savior as its life. It is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior for us to live a quiet, dignified, peaceful, godly life in every way. That's every facet. It's why the cults are so empowered in today's culture. Knock on your door. Yes, I'd like to talk to you about peace. Isn't that what we want? But yet the, the, the so-called Christian church of our culture has no peace. We say Christ is peace. We say our God is sovereign and is the peace bringer. But we are all busy about trying to bring the peace without peace. We're running our mouths, tweeting about it, talking about it, gossiping about it, calling about it, frustrating about it, sharing about it, and it does nothing so that we can get other people in our echo chamber to get upset about it with us, and we're all screaming about it together. What do you call that? A mob. And not in the organized sense. Why stick this here? Why in the world would Paul, in the midst of having false teachers causing people's relationships to go sideways, why would he put this in the midst of that? Because that's the point. What are we supposed to do, Paul? These people are going crazy. Are you praying for them? Your brother, Alexander, who started all this junk with his brother, Hymenaeus? Are you praying for them? Or are you trying to get things done for God? Are you trusting in the Lord? I mean, last time I heard, the scripture says that nothing's going to change God's plans. That God is sovereign over whether a bird flies from one side of the state to the other. Or whether a man moves from Timbuktu to Tallahassee. He's sovereign over it. So where's our peace? The reason we don't have peace is because we fill our lives up sometimes with fear. We fill our lives up sometimes with, with everything but the peace of Christ. Whatever is lovely, whatever is noble, whatever is peaceful, whatever is beautiful, whatever is encouraging. Think on these things, Paul tells the church. Fill your life with these things. And beloved, we do the exact opposite when it comes to political things. He says, lead a quiet life. And when we look at the instructions of the Bible, we see this over and over and over again. All the New Testament letters, the same Nero was in charge. Yeah. The same administration, the same horror, the same problems, the same wickedness in the world. But not one time, now correct me if I'm wrong, because I can miss things. I'm not saying I'm the expert in every word in the Bible. I'm not the expert in three words in the Bible, much less every word. But I may be wrong, so afterward you can tell me that I'm wrong if I'm wrong. But I have not found anywhere in any of the New Testament writings 
where any of the apostles have instructed any of the pastors or the churches to concern themselves with political issues. And yet, in the midst of it all, they were being killed, arrested, harassed, maligned, gossiped, destroyed, their properties being seized, burned as instruments of illumination, and yet it wasn't on the radar of the appointed apostles of Christ. Does that mean that we turn a blind eye to things that are needs? No. John's already given us that. Paul, of course, has told us that. James has told us that. We see that if our brother has a need, and sometimes that need is advocacy, but we're advocating for him or her, our brother or sister. We're not charging the gates of hell with a water pistol, per se. <laughs> Put out the fire. A water pistol in my day was different than what y'all got. It was the little things you bloop, bloop, bloop in the toilet and you put the little stopper in and you got like nine squirts and they went this far. Yes, we filled them up in the toilet. It's much easier. The back, not the bowl. Get out of here. But no, this is, this is, where, this is where we need to come to terms with the culture in which we live. And what's important, we are to address things as needs arise. And yes, it's okay to have an opinion. It's okay to have a stand. It's okay to stand on the side of rightness. But if we think that everybody else is going to follow suit, then that's insanity. And the minute we start making a political platform, God's platform, we've lost it. The gospel's gone. Christ has been reduced to a policy. Because at the end of the day, if it's required of us, it's required of my brothers in Somalia. And boy, they've got a mess over there. An entire country is run by warlords. What you going to do? Bloop, bloop, bloop. Let's go. No, that's not it. This is not the way, this is not the way it works. We pray. What are you going to do? Teach them to pray. Paul would even tell the church of Corinth, if there are any of you who are slaves, if you can get free and obtain your freedom, by all means do it. But most of all, be content in the station in which you stand because, what? It's not ultimate. The church will take care of you. And we see Paul talking to Philemon, don't we? Philemon is taught by Paul, Onesimus may be yours legally, but he's your brother, and you do not own him. And when he shows back up, he's not your slave anymore. You better treat him just like you treat me, the apostle. What? Now back up a couple of hundred years and see how that tobacco would come out the pipes of the revolutionary folks. See how it would look in the middle of the 19th century. See the birth of the Southern Baptist Convention. Church history, American church history is my thing, y'all, but I keep it to myself. There's nothing really positive about it. Except that God's sovereign over all of it. quiet, godly, dignified life. I don't think I finished talking about Romans. Whoever resists the authorities, Romans 13, 2, resists what God has appointed. Yeah, but the Constitution says I can. What Constitution do we believe? This one. Or the Lord's. And those who resist will incur judgment. I know it's different. And I got a lot of peers in the academic circles, and this is a really fun conversation. 
But I also have a lot of ex-friends who think it's demonic for even suggesting anything but, tear, but, but, but overthrowing the government. And that if, you know, if I'm not a alt-right, right-wing, red-blooded, which I guess we're all red-blooded, what have you, then I'm demon-possessed. I'm not lying. God help the libertarians. <laughs> Sorry, guy. Anyway, might be two or three of them. God help the constitutionalists. God help the person that goes, I can't do with this. My, my wife's dying of cancer. I could care less who's in the White House. You see? It's not ultimate. For rules are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? In other words, do you want to not be afraid? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, <laughs> be afraid. For God, I'm going to impose... God has not given him to the sword to bear in vain. For he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath the wrong, among the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection to the governing authorities, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So, pay your taxes. <laughs> That's the very next thing out of his mouth. And there's a whole generation. Yes, constitutionally, we can debate that. We can look and see where the laws and the freedoms collide in liberty. But it is what it is. And so do it. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Because you owe it to him. You owe honor to the President of the United States, no matter who sits there. You owe prayer. You owe respect. You owe simplicity and quietness. That's what we do. But that's not the culture we live in, is it? I mean, there are websites now for the last four sitting presidents that meme-worthy. I mean, stuff that's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is classic. This is gold, you know? From a comedy standpoint, gold is the high. There's no such thing as platinum. That just don't sound right. This is platinum. I mean, that's bougie. Gold. You know, gold is fine. If it's not gold, it's garbage. So there's the scale. And there's some stuff that's comedic gold. There's some stuff that's satirical. That's just like, it pulls my string. And see, that's my thing. Instead of trying to become aggressive, I just like to laugh at it all. But is that not the same? And it, it's one of those things where we go, oh, I'm such a wicked person. Well, and it doesn't bother me sometimes, right? And then that makes us feel even more guilty. And then other people go, did you hear that? He's not even sad over his sin. Did you hear you gossip and murder, busy busy? You don't even know you have sin. I mean, you know, meme that. So it's a tit for tat. It's constantly something else. It's constantly another way of dividing when the scripture commands us to come together under the prescription of the apostles' teaching that we hold fast to the gospel. We correct each other with gentleness and patience and long-suffering, kindness, enduring even evil, trusting in the Lord. And to give honor to whom it's owed, to give respect, to whom it's owed, give money, to whom it's owed, give taxes, to whom it's owed. And then the very next thing in Romans 13, verse 8 says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. And he's talking to the church now. Hear the little voices. Well, that's only my brothers. Now, we've already established you've got to love your not brothers and sisters too. But by all means, we love the brothers and the sisters too. 
How do we determine who's our brother? Whoever says they believe in the gospel. Simply. What about their theology? Your theology is not going to get you into heaven. And you can learn good theology and you can learn bad theology. And I'm willing to bet you that in some situations, I could be persuasive enough to make you think that the bad theology is the good theology. And not me, someone else. Building an argument that's true is not the point. Is it valid? Can I walk you up to the water that's no water and tell you there's water? Yes. We're easily led, beloved. Even Christians. Even the beloved of God. Even born-again people. We can all be led. We can all be led astray to strange teachings. We can all be led astray to ignore what we've heard in the Bible where it says, you know, you just stay together and work through it because that's the picture of Christ. Yet, human beings refuse to do what they should do because that's who we are. And beloved, we're about to get into a, we're got, we're, we're about to get into a, a political whirlwind as a country. It's going to be everywhere. I wanted to bet you that Sesame Street and the Smurfs or whatever cartoons still on television, I bet there's going to be political ads written into those things. There's going to be something going on because there's everybody now has an agenda. What is our agenda as the church? Oh, it's easy. Sola Deo Gloria. What does that even mean? To God be the glory alone. And how is God glorified amongst the church? That we live a dignified, peaceful quiet life amongst our enemies amongst the leaders of our culture and amongst each other and we endure and we're patient and we're quiet that's why the that's why timothy is going to be instructed in just a couple of uh, paragraphs he's going to tell what overseers are supposed to be doing and he's going to exemplify the qualifications to be the member member of a church in which an elder must personify must illustrate, must live out, must keep watch over. And then he's going to give some instruction about young men and young women and what they're supposed to be doing with all their zeal, passion, and ignorance and knowledge. They're supposed to be quiet. Supposed to be quiet and submissive and gentle and learn and learn and learn and learn. And it's not about the stuff in our heads. It's about learning to keep our mouths in the right seat. And learning that our zeal is not God sent. Learning that our triggers are not the Holy Spirit. It's the flesh. How do we know? When people leave the church, they're in the flesh. When people divide the body, they're in the flesh. I don't care what it's over. When the elders of the church look to the Bible and say, we're going to sit down, we're going to be quiet, we're going to learn, and we're going to listen, and we're going to hear each other out, and you go, no, I'm not. They are the sinner. They are the one who loses all voice. They are Alexander and Hymenaeus, refusing to do what is right. And that's not manipulation, is it? For those of you with more than one child at the house, or cousins, or you ever been in a room? <laughs> you ever been a preschool teacher? Lord help you. You could have five children and five problems simultaneously. And when you have children living in the same household who don't want to get along with one another, you don't just throw one out the window. It's only been a few months. There's this kid across the street. This new family moved in on the corner. She's got seven boys. And the youngest, he's a trip. He's out there in his little Hot Wheel Jeep, battery-powered deal. His hat was turned around backwards, and he's all up and down the road trying to cross the highway and stuff. And I'm going to town, and I come back, and he's not in the Jeep anymore. Because I think he got in trouble for trying to drive down a major highway with his toy 
And he was insulted by that idea, so he decides, I'm out of here. So he's got his little backpack, his hat turned around forward, and he's got a wheeled piece of luggage walking down the street. He's gone. He's out, moving. Gets to the end of the block, comes around, goes back inside. <laughs> Changed his mind. That's human nature. I'm not going to deal with this. I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not going to have this. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to obey anything. I'm not going to do what's right because everything's coming down and I'm going to tear it all up. It's time to go. Beloved, we can't deal with that as God's people. We cannot let politics do that to us. We cannot let theological differences do that to us. The division doesn't come because of differences of ideas, opinions, or even ignorances. The differences come as when we ostracize other with our hatred, with our lack of prayer, and with our insistence on being the voice that has the answer. So I think, wow, if I just read this, say pray for kings, pray for president, and don't expand on it a little bit more, Am I doing justice to the church as a teacher, you see? Because I'm willing to bet you that Timothy, when this was read to the congregations, to the large congregation of Ephesus, that somebody said, you mean to tell me <laughs> I got to pray for Nero? He burned my daddy on a pyre. I'm not praying for that man. Yes, you had to pray for that man. You need to live a peace. No, nah, man, look at me and I got 12 brothers. And we have got the artillery. We don't take this man out. No, you're not. You don't pray for him. Be quiet. Young man, sit on the front row and shh. Be quiet. So we see this instruction. The one who loves another person has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, the beauty of it is that even when we do it well, it doesn't justify us before the Father, does it? So you see, this instruction comes on top the foundation, atop the foundation of the gospel, of the good report of Christ's work. We are saved from the wrath of God through Christ. Therefore, we need to live in a manner accordingly. And I would say, I'm going to get my F in debate real quick. 95% of the people who have problems in their lives in the context of the local church are living in direct disobedience to the simple commands of loving one another. And it goes both ways. When people don't love us, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love them anyway. What does that mean? Feel nice about them? No, <laughs> he ain't got to feel nice. Did the cross feel nice? Was that a vacation from heaven? No, it's literally by definition hell. The wrath of God. In more ways than we could ever understand. The judgment of God. The justice and the righteousness of God poured out on righteousness itself. That's just baffling, you know? It's baffling. It doesn't, doesn't compute except in sovereignty. Except in the divine realm. In the economy of grace. It's the only way that works. But Jesus speaks a word, doesn't he? Father, forgive them. So the apostles don't teach the church to do anything in regard to that. There's no retaliatory mindset. There's no up-in-arms attitude politically on all the things that were going on during that time and the pain that was causing so many different people groups. The beauty about America, though, is that we do have the voice. We do. It's not illegal to say, this is a, a call foul. It's not illegal to vote your conscience. 
It's not illegal to speak. It's not illegal to stand with a group of people and peacefully protest. Peacefully protest. Without handcuffs, ropes, smoke bombs, Molotov cocktails, guillotines, bus fires. I mean, you know, I lived in the East Bay. I've seen it. People from Oregon come down and burn our city and then leave. Look what they did. Now look what you did. <laughs> That's not peaceful. Pro we have a right to peaceful protest, but it's not ultimate. And we don't organize it from here. And we don't insist upon others in the body of Christ sharing our zeal. Because what's more important? Your protest or my prayers for the circumstances? Which has greater effect? I hope I don't have to answer that for you. So it's not instructed the apostles didn't do it. Well, you know, Paul refused to go out the back door because that was his right. Just like if I just go home and there's somebody searching my house without a warrant. <laughs> hey! I'm calling my lawyer. I have that right. It's not ultimate, but I have that right. I'm going to exercise it. And why was Paul insistent upon not being hidden after he was beaten as a Roman citizen? Because he wanted people to see that it didn't matter your citizenship. That to bear the name of Christ destroyed the bonds of law. And it didn't matter. You think it was fair and just that John was exiled and imprisoned? You think it was fair that Paul was crucified, that Peter was crucified? You think it was fair? No, it's not fair at all. It's not just. It's unjust. Just like it wasn't just for Christ to die as a guilty person when he was innocent without sin, yet it was just because he was a substitute according to the promise of the covenant of God before the world began. So Jesus then spoke not a word in his defense. Why? Because he was subjecting himself to the will of the Father, which was the eternal purpose of God in all things, that the Christ took on flesh to what? To stand in the place of his people. That's where our peace comes from. That's where our peace comes from. And so what we're supposed to be about is, is really exemplifying that peace. Going into a mindset every single day of what does it mean to live out my Christian faith. Beloved, it doesn't mean to be an activist. Christians can be activists. That's great. I'm an advocate. I've advocated for many people. But I'm not out there on the news. But for the hundred or so people that I've advocated for through the years, nobody knows me, nobody knows them, but they know that a Christian brother stood in their place and helped them. That's the bigger thing, isn't it? But what's the day-to-day? -day? I read it out of 2 Peter chapter 1. I read the whole chapter at the beginning of the service. That God has called us and His divine power is granted to all of us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. His own glory, His own exposure, His own excellence, His own power. Jesus the Christ, His own example to walk this world being hated. Yes, Jesus got in the face of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yes, Jesus turned over the tables. But He's God. And he fulfilled prophecy. And last time I looked, none of our names are in the prophet's mouth. I sure wish I were. Because I have the zeal and the stupidity and the mouth to set things on fire. And then I read the book of James. That's why I'm often too slow to say anything. I'd rather leave it be for a little while to watch rather than just run right in there with my water pistol.
the very precious and great promises of Christ are guaranteed and granted because of who he is. And through him, we have become partakers of the divine nature. And that means that we are counted righteous as he is righteous. So we have escaped the wrath of God. And because of this, go to, first, go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to these things. For this very reason, the gospel of free and sovereign grace, for the very reason, for this very reason, make every effort. See, this is not theological thing. This is not a faith thing, although it is by faith. We are not going to fulfill this. And even if we did, we wouldn't be justified because of it. We are justified because Christ stood in our place. We are justified because God the Father has declared us so. We are justified because he has granted us faith. We are justified and so on and so forth. We know the logical order of salvation. It's not the theological order, it's the logical order. Make every, make, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And supplement virtue with knowledge. And supplement knowledge, here's the biggie, with self-control. So, you know, psychology 101, we hear words, and they produce mental images in our head and ideas, or however it is you think. I think in words, not pictures. It's always a discourse in there. Sometimes a mob. And then those things create feelings, don't they? And those feelings inform our lives, our decisions, and our actions. That's why in defense training, one of the things that you teach young students is just the basics of structure, of self-control. You don't show them the indicator of aggression. If you see a man's nostril flare out, punch him in the nose. I mean, you know, dude could just got a gnat up there. and Boop, now his nose is broke. There's a context in which we learn discipline. We wait. We pause. We respond in a way that is befitting the circumstances. And the circumstances of a Christ-filled person is to be patient and gentle and long-suffering and quiet and dignified. Self-control. Supplement self-control with steadfastness. Don't move. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't be excited over here and dull over here and, you know, passionate over here and angry over here and just find a center. Don't run around thinking God's called you to all these different things when God's called us to this first. And after years of good gospel discipline, then God will grow us into understanding how we are influencing those around us. We're not influential when we're out of control. We're not influential when our zeal produces immediate impact without knowledge and wisdom. Though we influence people It's not intentional, and it's often not good. Steadfastness with godliness. Supplement godliness. I don't have to explain what that is. With brotherly affection. And supplement brotherly affection with love. Love is an action in every sense of the word. And in every New Testament iteration, it is what is done. It is not how you feel. Love is the action that opposes the feelings. Well, I'm upset. I will be quiet. I will stay put. I will serve. That's love. Can you imagine spitting in the face of God? Can you imagine taking God by the beard and pulling it from the root? Can you imagine mocking God to his face? I'm a Marvel fanatic since I was like seven. 
all these movies. I know these stories already. They're getting them wrong. And every origin story is about somebody hurting something. <laughs> and they get great power and they get vengeance and they get justice. Christ got justice for somebody else. What the mind of God must have been able to rightly do and think and exercise in action when someone did that to him would have made a great hero movie. Even if he did die, coming out of the tomb unto vengeance. What a story. Talk about Easter. Everybody would be celebrating Easter. Well, you know, that's the BC comics. <laughs> Jesus comes out of the tomb. That's some bad stuff right there. You know what he did? He laser beamed all those guards. He said, let there be none. And they all vanished. I mean, you know. That's not what he did. He said not a word in his defense. Would God have been just in being anger, angry and in his anger destroying them all? Yes. Beloved, he didn't destroy us. He destroyed his son for us. So that we can understand that God's anger does not burn for us. And I think Brother Trey read out of Revelation a couple of weeks ago. The Christ that shall come again is one of justice. And he will receive his recompense. And it will be good. But he laid down his life. And in that quality... We see love and the love of God only there. Peter then says in closing, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. They keep you from being unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God hasn't called us to take up swords against doctrines and kingdoms and, and neighbors. God's called us to lay down our lives in love. And that's what we must do, beloved. And what Paul's going to tell Timothy to teach the church from this point forward is what that love looks like and what an orderly life looks like. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, Paul, Peter says, that he cannot see it all. having forgotten the grace of God. Is that the lost person? No. Beloved, saved people lose sight when they're not disciplined to hear and to do the Scripture. Christ never lost sight of His mission and His purpose to love His people. At the cost of himself. Let us learn. Let us learn and live accordingly. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the gospel of grace. We thank you, Lord, for our family of faith. And Lord, we pray again and again and again for those who hurt us, those that we hurt. We pray for reconciliation. We pray for peace amongst the people of the world who hate you. We pray for peace with those who rule over us and govern us. We pray that we would be a people of peace. A people of dignity. A people of humility and submission. And most of all, when we are, we are submissive to you. So Lord, as we 
leave this place today, we thank you that you love us and that you're patient with us. So continue to grow us. Continue to remind us of your eternal love for us and that we have no fear of condemnation. But Father, show us your discipline. Help to groom us, to settle us down and to give us peace in our hearts and minds that our mouths may follow suit and that our lives may be in a place of rest so that we may glorify you as we instruct others peacefully and gently and patiently, whether it take 10 years or 10 days or 10 minutes. Let us just be instruments of your gospel in the lives of each other and in the lives of the world among whom your elect live this very moment, that through our lives and evangelism, you would call them to faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.